Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. 
What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dave, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I came across you by uh, way of uh, a friend who is also a listener and uh, by one of your books, The Three Laws of Performance. So uh, tell us a, a bit about yourself, your background, your story, and, and how that has led you to uh, the work that you're up to in the world today. Sure. Well, probably the the best and fastest way to get into it is I'm a chronic insomniac, so I don't sleep a lot. And for that reason, I kind of dual tracked it when I was in grad school. So my mother used to joke, she dropped me off at preschool and I never left. So preschool, you know, turned into a bunch of other things, eventually grad school, and then flipped over to the teaching side, became a professor. But at the same time, because I didn't sleep a lot, I was really intrigued with consulting and have actually been consulting probably longer than I've been teaching. So I'm one of those rare people that uh, really, I love both worlds. I love the academic world. I love the consulting world. If I do too much of one without the other, I go slightly nuts. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what I try to do in my work is to bring things from the academic world that are interesting ideas, but haven't really landed as great, useful concepts. Mm -hmm. And to get to those in terms of stories and so on, but something that behind all the stories, you know, lurking, they're like the, I don't know, mechanics of a watch would be things that actually work. Mm -hmm. So, and my, my criticism of most business books is that they're either interesting or they work and they're usually not both. (laughs) <laughs> so I'm, I'm aiming for both. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's definitely true. Uh, you know, I, I want to take uh, a few steps back to the very beginning of all of this. Uh, you know, for it's it's interesting because to me, there's always sort of pivotal things that lead up to making the choices that we make in our lives to spend, you know, uh, the time doing the work that we do. And it's interesting you mentioned being a, a chronic insomniac. I'm curious, you know, what was your childhood like, and and what were your younger years like, and, and what was the influences that led you to to kind of end up on this bizarre sort of career path, which is a dichotomy of both the academic and the business side. Yeah, well, and it's even, it's weird for another reason, which gets into your question, which is I'm, academically, I'm interested in two completely different things uh, in equal measure. One is this field called rhetoric, 
and specifically the ontological branch of rhetoric, mostly following the line of someone named Kenneth Burke, Mm -hmm. who did most of his work in the early part of the 20th century. And I'm also interested in in kind of all things management. You know, I I love finance. I love um, operations. I actually did my dissertation on I used a communication lens to understand it, but I was looking at business process engineering within aerospace. So, uh, you know, so kind of how I got to all of that was I noticed that if it had to do with, with people talking, it could be speeches, it could be interpersonal stuff, it could be branches of psychology dealing with interpersonal communication. I just felt like I was home, but I also felt like it was missing something. It was missing the, the ability to really shape the world. You know, because business runs the world, whether you like business or not, it runs the world. I happen to really like business, but even even people who don't, I think, would agree that business is the most powerful force on the planet, certainly more than more powerful than governments or central banks. And and at the same time, when I looked at business, it was clearly powerful, but it seemed to be lacking something really fundamental. And so I, I was kind of, you know, split between those when I was going through school. And, and I finally landed in a in a course called organizational communication, and it was like I had just come home. It just brought all of it together. So it's like a simple example. My, um, and I guess the theme of this is sort of like schizophrenia, which I'm not. not. But my mother was a until she died about three years ago, a born again fundamentalist uh, Christian, voted for George W. Bush every chance she got, and she was married for 57 years again until her death to my father, who was an atheist, communist, skeptic, actually believed in the forced redistribution of wealth by gunpoint if necessary. And they were you know, married for all those years. And so um, it's kind of through my dad, I was really interested in the mechanical side of things. And through my mother, I was really interested in the passionate side of things. And my mother would drag me to church and I would sit there and I would map out the preachers, you know, what was their communication style. And I came up with my own language for devising it. To this day, I can map any speaker from Barack Obama to John Boehner to, um, you know, like a comedian, and uh, and it really seems to work. So, again, when I kind of landed in that course, it was just like coming home. This was my area. I don't right. know if that makes any sense. Probably the first time I've actually expressed that. Yeah, yeah, I know so it does. If I sound crazy, I'll just I'll just phone my doctor when we're done here. No, 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 it doesn't sound crazy at all. In fact, uh, it's it's a perfect setup for a question that I've been asking a lot of people lately. Uh, you know, you call it basically, you know, feeling at home. I call it reconnecting to that thing that we lost in our childhood for many adults. Yeah. And I'm really curious. I mean, how do you get it back if as an adult, you know, because most of the people who are listening to the show have, have probably to some, some of them have found it uh, or reconnected with it. And some of them are searching for it. And I'm wondering, yeah. you know, when you've worked with people, when you've talked to people and, and when you've noticed these patterns, I mean, how how do we get back to that? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, I have to approach it a little differently. I think for some of it, it is getting back to some kind of a, of a, you know, pre-adult bliss. But I think there's a version of it that we find as adults that is actually more blissful than what we had as kids. It's something different. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, so I'm I don't have any you know worldview or, or or like spiritual things. I just I'm an agnostic. So please don't hear this as anything other than a really interesting metaphor. But for me, um, I. I have a friend who's a mythologist, and he was describing that kind of the, the macro view of ancient Greece, which was that before you or I are born, we choose. We choose exactly the life that we want to have, and, and we choose our parents. We choose where we're going to be born. To some extent, we even choose the things that happened to us in early life, including the, the yucky things that happen, because it's something that the soul wants to experience. Mm-hmm. And then just before we're born, we go into what they called, or what some people have termed, the hall of forgetting, where we forget having chosen. 
And so we're born with the, these hunches, you know, these um, just senses that you want to go towards something. And it doesn't actually, it, it, you know, it's inconsistent. Like, why did I drift into organizational communication of all things? Uh, it actually didn't go back to anything in my childhood. It was something that only an adult would have the, you know, intellectual ability to grasp. And, and for me, it's like you, you've remembered the choice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a fascinating metaphor. And just to take it one more step, what I'm currently interested in just is because I'm interested in like bizarre things, are these medical stories where someone had amnesia and then it suddenly goes away and they remember who they are. So they actually, you know, are someone, but they don't know they are. And then they remember. And what actually happens during those moments of reconnecting, reawakening to one's identity. And one of the things that happens, believe it or not, is um, they have new abilities. So they might have been good at something, but they, they forgot they were good at it. But then when they remember who they are, they suddenly have that ability, typing as one, you know, or the ability to program, a, you know, in a certain language as another. Just, you know, with, with the return of identity comes these abilities. And for me, when I kind of remembered, and I'm putting that in quotes, that I chose to sit in the intersection of business and communication, looking at how people talk and how business sh- shapes the world, um, it's like I suddenly became good at things that I wasn't previously good at. And so, again, I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but that's the best way that I can explain it. So my advice to people, which I think was your was your question, is you have to follow those sparks, those hunches, those knacks. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're good at something and it's weird, it's random. Follow it. See where it goes. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually it will all connect. It always does. Yeah. But it may take a lifetime to figure that out. Yeah, well, that's that's one of the interesting sort of challenges of the world we live in, right? Is that you know people are are trying to figure out, okay, I want to do something deeply meaningful and satisfying, and yet I also have you know bills to pay. But I've always I've always said, you know, sometimes that creation becomes its own reward, and it, curiosity, I think, is one of the driving forces that leads us to so many wonderful things. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And and we t- and, and I think that we tend to ignore it because it doesn't seem practical. And I love that you said, no, those things that seem weird or those things that seem quirky are, are worth spending some time looking at in more depth. Yeah, I mean, it just it, it it's really true. I'm I'm talking to my uh, my niece who's in her teens, and and she's interested in two completely different things, which are writing, kind of creative writing, like fantasy and science fiction, and the other uh, has to do with chemistry. And, and math and, mm-hmm. and she feels like she has to choose. And to some extent you do when you're, you know, when you're a teenager, you do have to pick one that you're going to make your primary thing. But my advice to her is don't forget the other one, mm-hmm. whichever one you pick, you're going to do now and you're going to become good at it, but don't lose the, don't lose the other one. And I, I love the term, uh, cross-trained intuition, mm-hmm. you know, wh- where you're good at something, you're good at one field, and then you're good at another field, and they don't have anything to do with each other. But based on the inferences of the of like the field you're not using at the moment, you seem like a genius in your primary field. So for me, a lot of people have described my approach to leadership as as really like something that they just want to sit through again and again and again because it's so nuanced and so you know technical and and yet big picture. And they they ask me where it comes from. And the truth is, it, it's because I studied uh, language for so long and communication for so long. Mm-hmm. So I'm drawing on those inferences. It, it actually kind of makes you a genius in your primary field if you let it. Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, I think that uh, you know, mentioning the, the talk of language and communication, I think really sets uh, sets us up perfectly for what I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about. Um, 
You know, I, I came across you by, as I said, uh, the way of your book, The Three Laws of Performance, which, you know, for those of you guys listening, if you haven't read this book, I know I've mentioned it before, highly, highly recommend it. It's uh, definitely one of the, the books that was life-changing for me. Uh, so, so let's, I, I'd really love to dive deep into this whole idea of language and communication and how it affects the results that we get from our lives and, and how it affects, you know, the way we experience the world. Uh because I think it's, it's you know, one of the things that we, we find is often it, people will spend insane amounts of time trying to change their lives and improve themselves. And the changes are, are you know, minimal at best, um, surface level at best. And somehow we, you know, keep finding ourselves repeating old patterns or, you know, uh, uncovering old wounds, I guess is one way to put it. And I'd love for you to talk about how this all really shapes our ability uh, and, and, and performance and, and what it means for us, uh, as human beings. Yeah. Well, it, so the thing about three laws of performance, uh, the, I was the second author of the book, the lead author, Steve Zafron and I were in a think tank for many years called the Barbados group that included some just fascinating people. And we, we named it Bar- the Barbados group because that was the first place we met in Barbados. And I left Barbados without a tan, if you can. That gives you a sense of how hard we were working and how crazy the days were. But eventually, the Barbados group asked Steve and myself to write that book. It was really a synthesis of a bunch of different fields. So there's the transformational work a lot of people are familiar with. and there, But there's also a lot of rhetoric in it. There's a lot of complex adaptive systems. There's a lot of... of the people call it different things, the, the neuroscience aspect or brain science, mm-hmm. the what we need to understand about the brain in order to replicate its functionings and mechanical systems or people that were that had done deep dives on that. And so when we kind of pulled all those together and then tried to lay out the, the necessary requirements of understanding kind of how all this thing works about you know human beings in these amazing moments where, where everything changes, the thing that probably jumped out is you can't get around the fact that as human beings, you know, we use language. And a lot of people talk about what's the real difference between us and the other creatures on the planet. Is, a, is it a certain part of the brain? Sure. Is it opposable thumbs? Yeah. Is it ability to make tools? Sure. But so I'm not saying that this view is better. I think it's just it, for me, it's the most interesting and the most uh, um, the one that brings the, the, the biggest kind of set of insights mm-hmm. is that we have the ability to randomly assign meaning to, you know, we call them words, but they could be grunts or something. So in one language, you know, a certain expression means something. In another language, it doesn't mean anything. That's an arbitrary relationship. Mm-hmm. Whereas for dogs, they bark and they know what it means. Two dogs have never met. They're not socialized. They didn't go to preschool together. One of them barks. The other one knows what that means. That's not a symbol. That's It's called a sign mm-hmm. where there's, a, there's an inbred connection between the thing and the thing it refers to. So that that inbred connection for us as human beings is broken or made more complex. Uh, You know, crying still means crying around the world. Laughter, for the most part, means laughter. But our ability to use these amazing things called words. And the reason that I get so excited about that is when you then do a deep dive into that, you begin to understand with a, a kind of awe that most of us didn't have before what Shakespeare meant when he talked about, you know, in some ways we're like gods. And I love Mary Shelley's work in Frankenstein where she was talking about the monster's perspective looking at human beings that we have this godlike ability to you know to use words and it really is godlike you know in the in the judeo-christian sense uh, i think it's um i'm not a religious scholar i think it's isaiah something 
where God spoke and the earth existed. And in the New Testament, it's um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And in the in the Christian tradition, that's Christ. So, stepping out of the religion of all that, words have the have this amazing power. Uh, I my definition of rhetoric is it's the ability to create worlds of meaning, and then populate those worlds with people. Mm-hmm. So you create these worlds where things mean something, and then by inviting other people in, they then share your meaning, they share your your sense about about those connections, and then they act in remarkably consistent ways. Mm-hmm. And that really is a godlike ability. So I, again, I'm just I'm fascinated with that. And so when we got into three laws of performance, we were then looking for examples when primarily business leaders were using language in really unique ways and had the ability to create those situations where everything changed on a dime. Hmm. All right. Well, so, you know, I, I'm sure the question that probably comes to immediate, immediately when you say that, uh, the idea of using language where everything changes on a dime is, uh, okay, how do I put that in? How do I do that in my own life? Uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, I know what you mean about using language to assign meaning and, and all the things that happen. I mean, it, it literally, you have an experience in your life and then you tell a story about it. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because, uh, I've had some challenging personal experiences and, you know, I can sit down and I can write down the objective facts and somehow the, the story that I tell about it is still very, uh, troubling to me. It's still very, you know, I have a hard time separating myself from the story that I tell about it and the emotions that I feel about it. Uh, and I think that, that that can be the case with a lot of people uh, for things that are challenging for them. So, you know, the idea of changing things on a dime, whether it's in our businesses, on our lives, I mean, how do we really do that? Well, probably the best way to start and this very practical technique is it's called word mapping, mm-hmm. where someone is talking. So you'd, you'd use this towards someone else. So someone's talking, and you and you write down literally the words that they use, not synonyms or anything like that, but the actual words that they use in connection to other words. So there's a great speech that you can find on YouTube where Steve Jobs, the title of the speech if you want to look for it is, is Steve Jobs' Oldie But Goodie. And it's where he was introducing the uh, Think Different campaign, if you remember that. Yeah. And he's, and he's talking. Talking about it, and if you and if you just map his words, so what exactly does he say? What jumps out as being the most important words that he use that he uses, and what words does he use immediately before and after those key words? And you begin to map what Kenneth Burke described as his terministic screen. So terministic to term like word. So it's a screen or, or a filter if you will, of words. So we don't actually see the world. We see the world through this filter of words. And if you actually map, in Steve Jobs' case, how he sees the world, you can sort of think like him. It's actually kind of spooky. And what's then really helpful is to map your own words, your own terministic screen. And what jumps out at a lot of people when they do this is that there are certain terms that they never use in connection with other terms. So Michael Jensen, who was on the Barbados group and has done a lot of really great work with uh, Warner Earhart, who is also on the Barbados group around integrity and into companies, has this um, very simple kind of application of that, that for a long time, people would talk about their strategy. Mm-hmm. And so they'd have an organizational strategy, they have an operational strategy, a financial strategy, 
but they never had a people strategy. So notice what he was doing. He took a word that everybody was using, people, and he took another word that everybody was using, and that was strategy, and he drew a line between them. And suddenly everybody wanted one of those. Yeah, we need a people strategy. What's our people strategy? How do we get a people strategy? So he just very subtly kind of rewired their terministic screen, and suddenly they're all anxious to do something really you know, unique and powerful. Mm-hmm. So that's actually where it starts. You want to map other people's terministic screen or word map. You want to map your own. And then you want to begin to notice how you can drop an insight into someone's terministic screen simply by connecting words that they don't use. It reveals people's blind spots. Or it reveals their abilities, their talents. It's all just there. You know, people often are just kind of naked walking around. They don't know they're naked because they're constantly revealing how they see the world. That's a terministic screen. So I'd say that's where it starts. Wow. Okay. So really, really fascinating stuff here. Um, I'm wondering if we might do this in the context of an actual example that people can hear on the air. Maybe I could, you know, talk to you through some of my story um, briefly and, and we could, you know, pull out what you're talking about or map my conversation or map my words. Is that possible? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. So where do we start? Um, tell me about uh, a situation where you got to some results that you liked. You were happy with the result. Could be personal, could be business, doesn't make any difference. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you two. Uh, this year, we had I had a book that was self-published called The Art of Being Unmistakable that hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. And oh. I also uh, created and, and planned my first event called The Instigator Experience uh, with my business partner, Greg Hartle. And it was hugely rewarding, probably the most fulfilling professional experience of my entire life. That's really good. Yeah. And you said you had two. So what's the other one? Um, the book uh, that I mentioned. I had uh, a, a book that I self-published called The Art of Being Unmistakable, which became a Wall Street Journal bestseller. Oh, oh okay. I, I get you. So, so one is the book and then the other is the event. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I need you to – this is great. I need you to talk just a little bit more because I, I need okay. to spot some more connections be- between words. Sure. Um, so, so can you tell me what led up to the book? Yeah. So what led up to the book uh, – well, I jokingly called it you know, committing career suicide one Facebook status update at a time. But the reality of it was <laughs> that um, you know, I had had a lot of strange history with jobs, being let go from jobs that I had been at in the past, not having a very successful career track record. And I felt that I was kind of at this point of, okay, there's nothing left to lose anymore. I've, I've kind of cut and burned all these bridges at this point. And the only thing left, for, the only thing I have left at this point is the absolute raw, brutally honest truth um, about my life, about my opinions. And I'm going to share them in a very public way. And I'm just going to see what happens. And I think that this, you know, it, it felt very risky. It felt scary at times. And, and, and it was very vulnerable for me to do it. Um, but somehow it created a connection with people that was unlike anything I had ever experienced. I mean, it was, it, for people resonated with it like never before. And, you know, what had started as a way of sharing little snippets of a, a project that I was working on eventually became daily writing of essays on Facebook. And, uh, you know, eventually it all, you know, kind of, it was crazy because it was like this moment in which it all came together. Um, you know, I self-published this book and, Think I think two or three weeks after it came out, Glenn Beck of all people found it, and uh, the wow. book you know ended up just going crazy, gangbusters. I was on his show, uh, and bit by bit, the idea of unmistakable 
became sort of a, a, just a huge part of, of my identity. I mean, you know, our, our show is called The Unmistakable Creative. Uh, you know, it's kind of the, the sort of filter of, of how we try to do things is how are we going to make this unmistakable? It's like when we bring a guest to the show, okay, what about this conversation is unmistakable? How do we do something that stands out and stands above the crowd? Uh, and, and so, and even in our event planning process, that was, you know, everything that came through. And of course, I, I think another deep part of this is for me is the connection that it's created with people. Is that more helpful than what I, yeah, yeah, this is, this is great. And so, and so, so I'm, I'm just mapping the words that you're saying. And mm-hmm. so, uh, just in this example, clearly unmistakable mm-hmm. would be at the center of your word map. Okay. And you talked about, so you, you dropped in the, the lines that I'm sure you've used before that that resonate with people about committing uh, the, so committing certain acts. There was the idea that, that strange things happen. You talked about your, how you felt about it. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I'm just, I'm kind of noticing that the connections here you talked about brutal truth opinions. It's risky, scary, vulnerable, uh, creating a connection. It resonated snippets, uh, daily. You talked about small actions, moments, connecting the dots. And then the way you described success is very interesting in terms of gangbusters, crazy mm-hmm. um, connection. And so I, I guess kind of what jumps out at me is where I think you have a unique, a, a unique talent and a unique insight is that you can see things that others don't see. Um, you, you have a way of, of seeing things that, in your words, they're strange. Mm-hmm. And, and you also take a very proactive view of understanding yourself. So instead of saying things happened to you, you looked at the actions that you're taking that led to those. So you didn't say these things happened. You talked about you burn bridges. Mm-hmm. And because you have that that ownership of everything that happens in your life and you're able to to see things that are strange and then connect the dots is something then becomes unmistakable, you know, in your word, um, to you that is not immediately unmistakable to other people. Mm-hmm. And then you connect the dots for them so that they see the strange stuff. They see the brutal truth. And then, and that initially seems risky and scary because you're not quite sure if your brutal truth is going to be theirs. But when they begin to see it, then again, it's crazy and gangbusters because you've created all the connections. Right. And then you also create connections for people. So that's what I'm hearing is kind of how you approach things. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rose irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market wow nice yeah What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. So, you know, what I, I guess where I would want to take that next is, okay, so we, we've identified this, we've done this sort of a word map. Now, you've talked about being able to make, you know, massive shifts in performance by changing language on a dime. How do we do that? I mean, how do we take what you've just said and do that? And for anybody listening, how do they do that? Sure. Well, it, so it's much more helpful to talk about one person's word map in particular. Sure. So, so I'm, and I'm just going by what you said for, you know, for a few minutes and ideally, you know, we'd have this for a lot longer period, but probably the next place you want to go is blind spots. Mm-hmm. We all have them. So this is not in any way a criticism and a blind spot is actually not the best way to say it. It's more lack of emphasis. So what I'm about to say, I know you see it, but it's not the primary way you see it. If that makes sense. Yeah. So where I suspect you have a lack of emphasis and again, strong would be, would be blind spot is the ability to make sense of things that you actually didn't cause at all. It's the things that happen to you where you are very much, you know, if you will, the victim. Because, In other words, because you have such an empowered view of your life, mm-hmm. you might miss the, the, the things that are shaping you over which you have absolutely no control and have no ability to take ownership. And there's a strangeness in that. There's a brutal truth to that that you could see if you could kind of tease it out. It's just not where you go because your gifts encourage you to take that 
you know, that kind of empowerment. And so if I were to set up a challenge for you, actually, let me just pause there. Does that make any feel free to say that's completely off? Yeah, I mean, I, I find that to be true in, in, in a lot of cases in relationships and in other aspects of my life. But yeah, I think that's that's fair. I mean, it's interesting that you say that like I one of the one of the sort of common themes that I, I kept coming across as I looked at certain aspects of my life where things that didn't seem like they were in my control happened to me was this idea. I remember thinking back to some of the stories in your book of things that came up when you were younger. And one of the themes that came up as I've done a few interviews recently is that this idea of not being enough, no matter what I accomplished, it, it's strange to think of all the things you accomplished and then have this sense that I'm not enough. Right. But yeah, absolutely. It makes sense what you're saying. And yeah, and so, and you know, what what you're just saying there, you you kind of reinforce the, um, and at this point, I actually may call it a blind spot, which is something happens, and you then go and you analyze your own behavior. Mm-hmm. How was I not enough? What did I? Where did I fail? Although you've never you've never used the word fail, so that word may not resonate with you at all. But where did, where was I not enough? Mm-hmm. And so, what you perhaps aren't seeing would be the macro trends around you, the things that are happening to you. And there might be some insights that you could draw, some brutal truth that you could draw about the nature of the world that have absolutely nothing to do with your actions. Mm. And so then if I were to set up a challenge, it would be take something like 30 days and your job in the 30 days, besides everything that you're doing that makes you unmistakable and, and successful and all that, it would be to notice the things over which you have absolutely no control and that make you feel very strongly. It, it could be that they piss you off or it could be they make you happy. So personally, when I look at the world, you know, I spend a lot of time reading about the things that are happening in the Middle East, for example. And there's a lot of, and I'm not getting into politics, but there's a lot about it that just drives me crazy. So in your case, find the things that drive you crazy that had nothing to do with you and begin to tease out the sense of values violations in the world around you. And you'll develop kind of a, an outrage, which is also something you you know have not mentioned is sort of the the negative side, the mm-hmm. dark side, if you will, of, of leadership. Sure. Where you know you develop this kind of sense of outrage that you know this must end, um, and it'll open up a completely new world of leadership to you. So anyway, something to think about. But consider it Dave's customized thirty day challenge for you. <laughs> well, that's that's the the perks of being the host of the show, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, it's actually let's let's talk about this idea of the things we don't control in a bit more depth. Uh, yeah. Because I, I think that that's that's such a hard thing for us to get our heads around. I mean, to some degree, obviously, you're a university professor. You're achievement oriented. I think anybody who's listening to this show is achievement oriented. I grew up in an Indian family. I'm I like to not be achievement oriented would probably have gotten me thrown out of the house. Sure. Uh, and I, so, so what I wonder uh, about all of that is how we, how we cope with this idea of the things that are not within our control when we're such driven people. And you know, what are the things that are not in our control? I'd like to think the ability to have certain relationships are in my control. I'd like to think my you know, income is in my control. But I also realize there's numerous factors of life. Like I can't control another person's behavior, right? But I'd like to think I can. Mm-hmm. Through my own actions and choices, sure, yeah, and and that's it's a very empowered you know way to see it. Well, so let me just jump, if I could, to another perspective. It fits right with what you're saying. There are essentially five, uh, if you will, languages of leadership, and this was the primary thesis of the book I'm most known for, which is Tribal Leadership. Mm-hmm. And what you're talking about 
in, in how you approach the world is a very empowered view. And it's, it's my view as well. And this is going to sound a little bit insulting as a way to talk about it, but it's kind of the I'm great and you're not frame. Sure. And so in the I'm great, you're not, the most important word is I. Right. And I'll come back to I. So here's how I see it. I did this. I, I took action X. I got Y result. But also I failed, you know, and, and I failed, but I see it. So now I'm better. Mm-hmm. So it, it's this constant kind of self-betterment. So we call that stage three. And it's a very important use of language. And it, and it is very much a leadership language. It's what Martin Luther King used when he said, I have a dream. He didn't say there is a dream or God has a dream. He was religious, so he could have said that. But he said, I have a dream. Mm-hmm. So saying I followed by something very declarative is, again, we call it stage three. So let's actually go back. So stage two is the one I'm kind of pointing you to. And the theme of that one is my life sucks. Mm -hmm. So if you find all the ways that your life sucks and kind of dwell in that, it will give you a completely new insight into the world. And a lot of people hear that and they say, well, why would I ever talk? (laughs) Yeah, that's not in power. That would have gotten me kicked out of the house when I was a kid. But look back at Winston Churchill's wartime speeches. And many of them are they start with, you know, this really sucks although we never said those words, look at the Declaration of Independence. Most of it by volume or by word count is why it sucked to live in the colonies under this really mean guy who was making our lives difficult named King George. Mm -hmm. That sucked for us. And that was the part that got the people out in the pubs drinking, you know, really like talking about the need for war, the need for independence. Mm -hmm. So that's a very strong way to talk is, is, you know, what's not right. Martin Luther King's speech, The Eye of a Dream, actually starts with My Life Sucks. Hmm. And that's the language of change. That's where change starts. Going back all the way down to stage one is one we don't use very often and shouldn't. It's a very, in some ways, dangerous one. Uh, and that's Life Sucks, where your view of the fundamental kind of view of life is that it's broken. And this is what groups use as a language system when they when they do accounting fraud or they steal things or you know these horrible actions you hear about where people are shooting up schools and things. Uh, but you know it's how humanity talked for a lot of our existence. So again, stage one is life sucks, and it's a useful way to you know to, to see the world. I'm not saying it's a one you want to dwell in. Stage two actually is worth dwelling in. It's my life sucks. Find all the ways you're a victim. See something that happened to you from the perspective of victimage. This happened to me. This sucked to me. Um, and then talk about stage three. So what do I see? What could I have done? Mm-hmm. Right? It's the the I frame. And then go to stage four, which is we're great. And that's where the, the I shift shifts to we. And now a group begins to talk about their own commitments, their own values in a collective way. Mm-hmm. And so using the Martin Luther King example, after he does the I have a dream thing and hits that uh, line a bunch of times, then he goes and talks about we. Here's what will happen to the we who see the world this way, who want to create the change. And it's not going to go well for us, but it's the price we have to pay for our dream. Now it kind of shifts to the hour. And then the last one, number five, stage five, we call it, is life is great. And that's in the Declaration of Independence, the discussion of of inalienable rights. Or in Martin Luther King's example, the end of the speech is he talks about all of God's children. So that is pure, if you will, values, it's pure possibility, and that's a great use of language too. But here's the key. As a leader, you need to be able to talk all five of them, mm-hmm. and most of us go to one or two, and that's where we hang out. For most people in the world, it's either my life sucks or I'm great and you're not. 
And for really accomplishment people, oriented people, it's I'm great and we're great, but you don't really do the others. So you really want to expand your bandwidth, learn all five terministic screens. Wow. Does that help? Yeah, yeah, that helps tremendously. I mean, I think it makes a, a perfect setup for, for something else I want to talk about. Uh, you know, I, I love this idea of expanding the terministic screen and, and these, you know, five different ways of looking at things. You know, one of the things that uh, I, I know you guys talk about in the three laws of performance, um, something that really has, has struck a chord with me is the idea of sort of rewriting the future and one of my, my own challenges that I've had with this is that, you know, often it's, it's exactly and one of the things you talk about is this filing error concept. What we do is we, we look into, we, you know, we look into the future and what we're actually seeing is our past, uh, constantly. And you said, you know, I remember you saying that no matter what we change the future, you know, there's a, a default future that's racing towards us or that we're racing towards. And I'd love to talk about this concept of rewriting the future. Uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny because the closest thing to it that, I've experienced is my friend AJ Leon. He has people who he, he talks to. He says, write an evacuation plan of what your life will look like two years from now in 500 words or less. And then he said, and then put it somewhere. And strangely, I did that two years ago. And a lot of the things on it actually came true. And then I had to do, I did it again recently. And I'm just, I'm very curious about your perspective on all of this, given how much you, I mean, because you guys have, have caused like truly measurable substantial change as opposed to sort of the hokey new age bullshit, you know, meditate and do affirmations until you're blue in the face that I've seen people do and not make a single change in their life at all. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I share your, um, if I can use a strong word, your cynicism about the, the affirmation movement, it just, it doesn't work. And in fact, it, it's, it's even worse than that. It encourages people to accept things as they are, but then have an affirmation to kind of balance out your cognitive constructs about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm I'm never into book burning because that you know takes us to really bad periods in, in human evolution. But I would uh, I would encourage people to never read those books. Actually, <laughs> they, they 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 increase your satisfaction ironically mm-hmm. with how things are, and you actually want to increase your dissatisfaction with how things are. Mm-hmm. So. Um, yeah, I mean, so the idea of the default future is very simple. It all comes down to what what we call the oracle question, which is what's likely to happen if nothing unexpected comes along. And so, as a simple example, I was with a big company this last week. I won't name the company, but they're in energy, uh, but you know, one of the big ones in the world. And so, I had a big discussion with you know several hundred people about what what was going to happen in their company if nothing unexpected came along. And there's good that they talked about. They're, you know, having a great, they're growing and they're, they're doing very well. They're very mindful of safety and things like that. So there was a lot of good that came out. There's a lot of bad that came out that mm-hmm. the market needs us to grow so fast that we'll probably lose our way and we'll be pushed into taking risks that may not be really good for us. And then there's ugly that came out, which was, and we might even compromise our own values in that because we're, we're pushed to grow and eventually the need to grow financially outweighs everything else. So we'll lose ourselves in the process. We'll lose ourselves as individuals. We'll lose ourselves as a company. This is a very you know proud company with a very rich history. It's actually a, co- a company that I think the world of. And so, you know, and they weren't particularly happy about that default future. But notice that's what we're kind of doing is forcing a stage two um, conversation, which is, you know, you're, you're kind of at the effect of this default future. 
So notice what, what the effect is. And the weird thing about the default future, the, where it gets kind of crazy, is people act in a way to actively bring about that future. Whether they like it or not is irrelevant. If you see a future, you will act to bring it about, even while you fight it at the same time. So, you know, in this case, the question is, so if that default future were in the guts, if you will, of all the employees in this big company, what actions would they take? And they said things like um, really emphasize growth, um, just decide that we're going to become one of these big, dumb, lumbering, bureaucratic companies to kind of give up, don't really innovate. Never really talk about values because in the end, that's probably going to get you fired. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was really kind of scary stuff. And they were scared to hear it. And then I asked them the question, do you do, not, not, not asking you as individuals, do you see yourself behaving this way? But do you ever see others in your company behaving this way? And, of course, they did. So and that was really frightening, you know, for them. So then the way you 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 reinvent the future or rewrite the future is you turn to what we call the invented future. So take that default future, put it down or draw a line you know, if you're taking notes and then ask yourself the question, if you said no or hell no to the default future, what is it you want instead? Just what would you want? Don't worry about if it's if it's realistic or not. Just, you know, what is it you want? And I've done this with people that are very um, cognitive, very um, kind of evidence-driven, like a lot of medical doctors, I mean, probably 10,000 by this point, mm-hmm. and lots of engineers, lots of, of corporate executives, lots of aerospace people done it at, you know, some interesting places that are into space discovery. I mean, just some fascinating things. And and when you get them to talk about their invented future, you, you're actually shifting the conversation initially to I'm great, but really to we're great, and soon it goes all the way up to life is great. And they talk about what they want, and it's really inspiring. They're talking about their values. They're talking about their beliefs, their core beliefs. They're rediscovering those things that they saw as kids about why they got into this profession perhaps. And you know, and then it's the rest is actually mechanical. So that's the future you want. And of course, they'll get really excited. Um, great. Well, let's – you know, let's not try to jump there all at once because it's too much. We'll lose people along the way. It's the boil the ocean strategy, which doesn't work. The question is, what are very simple actions that you could take that would alert everyone, yourself included, mm-hmm. to the fact that we're not going to the default future, but we're going to the invented future instead? Something really, really simple. And like in this energy company that I'm talking about, one of the things that they cooked up is um, every day, just take out one minute. And find someone you don't know and sit down and, t- and have them talk about what excites them about anything, so excites them about their life, excites them about the energy business, excites them about the future, excites them about their families, because their view was the default future is passionless and the invented future is all about passion and values and commitments. So if you get people talking about passion, we're then going to leave that default future behind. It begins to sort of dim mm-hmm. and the invented future seems much more realistic. So you know, then you kind of stair step your way into it. You can also do big steps toward it, but it's then the idea of uh, small bets or little bets mm-hmm. or the, you know, this, the Eric Reese's stuff on lean startup. You just, you find hypothesis driven ways, you know, to get there. And before long, you know, we're talking something that can be measured in weeks. You've radically shifted the future that people are living into. And then automatically all of their actions will change. They don't need to be reminded to do it. They don't need affirmations to do it. You don't need a coach calling you every day to remind you. You don't need a mug. You don't need a T-shirt. You don't need a screensaver with impressive words on it. Mm -hmm. Your behavior just changes. 
And what I love about it the most is people will say to the people who are going through that, you know, like, did you lose weight? Are you exercising? You know, what happened? Because they just seem more alive. They seem more vibrant. Mm -hmm. So it's really fun. And I love that it's actually based, you know, in stuff that works, like behavioral economics and, um, you know, neuroscience and and a lot of science having to do with how language functions. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. So a couple of questions come from this. Uh, One, you know, you said, you know, what would it look like if something unexpected came along? How do you how do you handle setbacks in this case? I mean, you know, as we're moving towards a default future I, I, or the, the invented future, it's not smooth sailing, right? I mean, yeah. li- life is going to happen. Things that are un- unwanted things are going to occur in our life. And I can tell you this from personal experience that, it, you know, we what w- came out for me through this whole experience of the year was learning to see that, OK, you have like it all goes like a wave. It's this incredible high and then it goes back to being normal and then it goes up and down. Uh, you know, we had huge runs of success for like six or seven months straight. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, this isn't the same again. You know, and uh, and of course, you know, Sean Acor, the happiness researcher, says he's like your brain changes a set point for what success looks like. So I, I'm curious kind of, you know, what role our actual happiness uh in the present moment plays in the ability to to you know deal with this invented future and also how we deal with the setbacks and inevitable things that are going to happen sure yeah well two things about that one is the setbacks are not just inevitable but when you when you try or attempt uh that's too soft a word when you rewrite the future your default future is going to come back with a vengeance it's like a tidal wave and it's going to try to suck you back in. It's just kind of the nature of how all this stuff works. You've got neural, neural pathways that are going to remind you of how you should work. Your endocrine system is not going to positively respond to the fact that you're doing different things. Like everything is going to kind of you know, get messed up. And so immediately you're going to have a massive, massive setback. And the, the kind of reframe for that is it's actually not a setback at all. That is the energy that got released when you broke your addiction to the to the default future. I mean, it's like delirium tremens if you break your addiction to, you know, uh, alcohol or, or you know or some you know some kind of drug. People sort of freak out, and that's actually what's happening. This is what it looks like to live into the invented future. Is immediately you're going to have you're going to have this, but the faster you go through it, you have to experience it. There's no workaround for it. The the more realistic the invented future then becomes, it's, it's a, you know, sorry to give you a bunch of analogies, but it's kind of the, um, you know, when the first planes were approaching the sound barrier, the first thing they noticed was this incredible turbulence. They were afraid it was going to shake the plane apart. Mm-hmm. And then when they broke through, the people watching on the ground lost sight of the plane because it broke that barrier and suddenly it was able to accelerate beyond people's imagination. So looking at it linearly, it looked like the plane disappeared. And then, of course, it had jumped way forward in the sky. That's actually what happens. So, um, you know, you, you, you kind of have to know that. Uh, but then the other thing that, that you have to kind of realize is that if you stay focused on language during it, you'll be, you'll be okay. Mm-hmm. And, and specifically what you want to do is rattle, rattle in all of those five languages, you know, that, that I was talking about, including My Life Sucks. Don't push it down. Don't deny it. Don't repress it. Don't pray it away. Indulge it. Embrace it. This royally sucks. Talk about that. Mm-hmm. Talk about what you as a person are going to do to make it better. Talk about I'm great. 
Talk about we're great. What are we as a group going to do about this? Talk about life is great. Let's go back to the intention, the the values, the possibilities. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you kind of rattle through all of those and just indulge them, indulge them, wallow in them, uh, you're able to move through it really quickly. I love that. I, I don't think I've ever heard it put that way before. Uh, I, you know, I mean, somebody told me, they said, you know, often uh, we had a friend here who said that the way the universe works is sometimes we have to contract in order to expand. And I yeah. thought that was a really sort of brilliant way of putting it. But I love, you know, what you said about that. So I want to wrap with two final questions because I know you got to get going here. Um, one is is around sort of this idea of post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress. You know, you mentioned sort of the, you know, it, you get handed a moment that'll try to suck you back into your default future. And really what that is, is just making the invented future much more realistic, which I, that's such a, a great way to look at it. Uh, what's the difference between people who get sucked back into the default future versus the ones who get through this? Uh, like people who experience post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress, because some of these events really demolish people, I think. Yeah, it's the key question in, in leadership. Warren Bennis talks, talks about it as a crucible. And in one of his articles, he he mentions one of the things we don't know about leadership is why some people are forged in the crucible, kind of made into leaders, Mm -hmm. and others are crushed. And I think he was being a little self-deprecating in saying that he actually knows a lot about why some people are are made and other people are unmade, if you will. But it, it seems to come down to a set of habits. And probably the most important is just the need to be grounded in in relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have people that you can sort of release the the steam on, if you will. You know, people you can dump to and, and vent to about everything that's going on, including, you know, maybe even stage one. Like, <laughs> life sucks right now. This could not be worse. I feel like God is cursing me. Great. Mm-hmm. Vent that. And if you have people that are really open to the full spectrum of those conversations, it, it releases a lot of the energy. And as you release the energy, that's, you know, it's one way to talk about one way to talk about leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other is, is have someone, it's got to be, you know, one person that is kind of for you, the person who will only listen to you as your best aspirations. That's all they're going to listen for. So you want to have other people you can talk to about all the, all the other stuff. In my case, Warren Bennis is actually the keeper of that. Mm-hmm. When I talk to Warren, I am smarter around Warren than I actually am. <laughs> you know, he's an amazing person. He, by some uh, tellings, he invented the field of leadership. That's probably a little overstated. But, you know, he's an amazing person. I'm wiser when I'm with him. And, and I need to spend time with him because that's how I reconnect to those best parts of myself, ironically, is through another person. So actually designate someone in your life as the keeper of your highest aspirations. Mm, I love that. So uh, final question for you, Dave, you know, our show is called The Unmistakable Creative. And uh, I guess the question for me is, you know, in a world of so much noise, what is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable? Um. I had the opportunity to talk to Howard Schultz not too long ago, and you know he's big in this authenticity thing, as most people are. And I asked him the question in front of a group of people, <laughs> probably not the great question to ask at that moment, but the question that I asked him was, well, what if someone is authentically a jerk? Do you then want them to be authentically a jerk, or do you want them to be inauthentically nice? And he kind of, you know, looked at me. And he, he like he didn't know how to answer the question. I don't think he'd ever been asked it before. And then he, he just kind of went on with with what he was saying. But what I would say makes someone unmistakable is to fully embrace uh, with authenticity the parts of you that scare the hell out of you. Hmm. Actually, embrace those. 
and I, and I don't mean play them all the time. Don't become a narcissistic jerk, but embrace them. Embrace the darkness of your own of your own nature, and and bring it into attention with the aspirations. So it's not aspirations alone. It's not darkness alone. It's the tension between them. And that makes you unmistakable. It gives you a gravitas that most people don't have. It gives you the ability to just see through all the bullshit in a way that the vast majority of people don't have. So that'd be my two cents. Awesome. Well, Dave, this has been uh, just fabulous as I expected it would be. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share some of your insights and your story with our listeners here at The Unmistakable Creative. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Appreciate the opportunity. Oh, if anyone wants to contact me, my uh, website is just, it's super simple. It's davelogan.com. There's a ton of free stuff on there, including a free free audiobook of tribal leadership. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. And for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.